1: Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me Chris Smith and also with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello, and this week
2: Jurassic Park comes to life, perhaps, as blood is extracted from a fossilised mosquito. And we take a look at the Spanish slugs that are invading Britain's back gardens, plus superbugs, how scientists are using new technology to study and stop the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria.
3: You're shedding about 15 million bacterial cells into the immediate environment around you every minute. Those 15 million cells comprise mostly of bacteria associated with skin, but they also come from your nose and your mouth, and interestingly, even uh, from your uh, gastrointestinal system via your trousers and onto the seats you're sitting on.
1: And on the subject of bugs, for our scientific teaser this week, a cryptic clue for you. Fishwoman with food poisoning. Who is she? You can get in touch with us by tweeting at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at scientists.com.
4: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
2: Much to the disappointment of cryptozoology fans everywhere, that's people interested in the study of hidden animals like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, a scientist from Oxford University is claiming that the legendary ape-like Himalayan monster, the Yeti, might be nothing more than a type of bear. Now, Professor Brian Sykes has analysed hair samples from mummified remains of a yeti-like creature shot by a hunter that was in the mountains four decades ago, and also a single hair that was found around ten years ago in a forest in Bhutan by a group of yeti-hunting filmmakers. And what he did was he analysed the DNA from these samples and compared it with sequences from all sorts of other animals that are out there in the International DNA Database. And interestingly, he found a 100% match with DNA from a jawbone from an ancient polar bear found in Norway. And this dates back tens of thousands of years. It's about around the time that polar bears and brown bears are thought to have separated into two species, although they're still very closely related and they can actually interbreed where their territories overlap. Now, Sykes thinks that the probably the most likely explanation for the yeti myth is that the animals are actually some kind of bear, like maybe a brown bear or a, a brown bear slash polar bear hybrid, rather than an ape. But as no one's actually seen a yeti or conclusively got a body, it's really hard to know for sure. Uh, and it certainly, as he says, he certainly doesn't mean that there are rogue ancestral polar bears roaming the Himalayas. Uh, he thinks it is probably that they're some kind of hybrid and that might be what the yetis are.
1: So this hair that's been found, we, we don't know exactly what it's come from, except that it does have a very close genetic resemblance to extant bears.
2: Exactly. So the hair was found by people who were tracking yetis and looking for yetis. So they said, we've got this hair, it's from a yeti, and it turns out it's from a bear. Uh, It's all a bit complicated, and this isn't the first time that analysis of alleged yeti samples have failed to come up with evidence that it is an ape. Uh, In 2008, a similar analysis on hairs from the North Indian Himalayas turned out to be from a type of goat rather than an ape. Um, And that's what a lot of cryptozoologists think that the yeti is. They think it's uh, some kind of ape, um, some kind of big, massive ape, gigantopithecus, I think. Uh, Now, the research also does come with a bit of a scientific health warning. These results were just announced to the press. There isn't a peer-reviewed journal article about them. um, So other scientists haven't really been able to see the data or scrutinise it. So uh, we need to really see it to be out and published to comment on the likelihood that this bear theory might be correct.
1: Until then though we'll continue to believe.
2: Um, well you know are you the moulder or the scully in this team chris <laughs> I'll
1: go for both. Now you probably were a bit of a fan of Jurassic Park were you can?
2: Mm, yeah a little bit scary for me.
1: <laughs> well that came out in 1993. And I remember that because I was doing my A-levels at the time. And for those who can't remember the storyline that made Michael Crichton an absolute fortune, it's absolutely brilliant stroke of genius writing. But the idea was that a mosquito had fed from a dinosaur, that the blood inside the mosquito had been preserved because the mosquito was stuck into a blob of amber, and that scientists were able to get the blood out of the mosquito, get the DNA out of the blood, and then clone a dinosaur from that. Now, that was a brilliant idea, but it's never actually come to pass, because, believe it or not, despite the fact that it's now 20 years since Jurassic Park, no one's ever got fossil, blood out of a mosquito. Until now, because this week in the journal PNAS, Dale Greenwald and his colleagues there at Washington DC's Carnegie Institute, they've actually published the first example of extracting a mosquito's last meal from a mosquito that died 46 million years ago. It's a beautiful fossil. It's preserved in what would have been mud at the bottom of a pond somewhere in Montana. And what they did with this fossil was they first of all shone x-rays onto it. And x-rays excite atoms in the material that's in the fossil and make different atoms glow different colours. And we know what the colours are that correspond to different atoms, so you can work out what chemicals are in there. And the back end of this mosquito, which is very engorged, just like a mosquito that's just fed in the fossil is full of an iron signal and of course blood is full of iron which made them think well it looks like there is genuinely some blood or, or constituents of blood inside this mosquito fossil. So then they use another technique which is called TOF SIMS which stands for time of flight secondary iron mass spectrometry and what you effectively do is you blast the surface with a stream of charged particles and these dislodge molecules from the fossil which you can then suck up and put into an analyzer and it works out what they are and when they did this they got a really strong signal for a kind of molecule called a porphyrin ring and hemoglobin is an example of a porphyrin ring hemoglobin is the red stuff in our red cells which has got the iron in the core of it and so they're suggesting that this is the first example of demonstrating that chemicals can be preserved inside an insect inside a fossil from 46 million years ago. So maybe Michael Crichton was on to the right thing all that time ago.
2: But we haven't actually managed to get fossilised DNA out and analyse it, have we? So I I still think Jurassic Park may just be in your fantasies, Chris.
1: No pleasing some people, is there?
2: I'm sorry. Anyway, it's official. The UK has a slug problem. This week, researchers from the John Innes Centre in Norwich asked the public for help to uh, to help them track down the Spanish slug. It's a rapidly reproducing invasive species that eats crops and is not deterred by slug pellets. Here's your quickfire science on... Invasive species with Matt Burnett and Simon Bishop.
5: An invasive species is any animal or plant that has come from another area which disrupts the environment and outcompetes native species. Humans like to travel the world and sometimes other species like to come with us. Mosquitoes spread to some Pacific islands by hitching a ride in the wooden planks of boats, but unfortunately they also took dengue fever with them. Dutch elm disease has also been ravaging woodlands in Europe and North America after accidental introduction from Asia. Our trees just weren't prepared for it, having never needed to evolve resistance. Zebra mussels spread around the world from Russia in ships. It costs the UK water treatment industry millions of pounds every year to clear them out from pipes. Species have also been introduced to countries just because they are exotic. Japanese knotweed was brought to Britain in the 19th century because people thought it looked pretty. But gardeners soon found out that it can grow through concrete, damaging everything from roads to drainage systems. The American crayfish was brought to Britain to give farmers extra income, but it escaped the farms and outcompeted native species in the wild. But good news! Campaigners are encouraging fishing of the aggressive beasts, which go very well in a salad. Farming can also make life easy for invaders. In Central America, intensive farming of coffee uses pesticides, which have disrupted the food chain and allowed the spread of rust fungus. A poor coffee harvest this year led Guatemala to declare a state of emergency. In 1935, the poisonous cane toad was imported to Australia to eat crop pests. But now it is the pest. There are hundreds of millions of them roaming the outback with no predators. Nowadays, the International Organization for Biological Control are the people looking for safe species to use in pest control. At the moment, they are looking for a natural enemy of the cabbage moth, but one that won't go on to become a problem itself. To prevent the spread of pests, countries have strict customs rules. All planes arriving in Australia, for example, are sprayed with insecticide. You can help researchers map the infestation of Spanish slugs by sending your sightings to slugwatch.co.uk.
2: That's Matt Burnett and Simon Bishop, and you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at nakedscientist.com quickfirescience. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Kat
1: Arney. Superbugs now. Now, later in the show, we're going to be hearing from a host of scientists who are trying to tackle bacterial infections and head off the rising tide of antimicrobial resistance. One serious superbug threat, though, is Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, which is a particular problem for elderly, hospitalized patients. Martha Clokey from Leicester University has been working on a way to tackle the bacteria using. Viruses. Hello, Martha. Hello. First of all, why is C. diff, Clostridium difficile infection, so dangerous for patients?
6: Clostridium difficile is found naturally in the gut. And what happens to patients is that often when they're given antibiotics to treat another infection, all the normal bacteria present in the gut are destroyed, apart from Clostridium, which can then massively expand in the gut area and it releases toxins or poisons, which then cause very, very severe diarrhea.
1: So it's the fact that it's there already, but you effectively clear the way by destroying all the healthy or good bacteria with the antibiotics that enables it to gain a a big toehold.
6: Yes, that's right. Well, often it can be present. In adults, perhaps about 5% of adults carry it normally. But one of the main problems with Clostridium difficile is it makes spores. And these spores, once they're in a hospital environment, are very, very difficult to remove. So that's why outbreaks are often associated with hospitals.
1: So you have a symptomatic patient who puts some spores into the hospital environment and then another person comes along and even if they weren't carrying C. diff to start with, pick up the spores... And then the toxic combo of those spores, plus a whole host of antibiotics for another infection, which wipes out their normal bugs, enables them to then get colonised and then get a major problem with their C. diff.
6: Yes, that's exactly what happens.
1: So if someone does get C. diff at the moment, how do we treat it?
6: Well, at the moment, there are two antibiotics that are routinely used to treat it, metronidazole and vancomycin. These antibiotics work in most patients, but some patients, they can be okay once they're on these antibiotics. But as soon as you remove the antibiotics, they just relapse and become sick again.
1: Oh, so it's almost like the balance of microbes in them isn't quite right. So they keep getting the C. diff coming back again.
6: Yeah, that's right.
1: So what are you doing to try to tackle this?
6: Well, what we're doing is trying to find a new way to treat it. What we're looking for is viruses that naturally infect the Clostridium difficile. Clostridium is a bacterium, so it's a single-celled organism, and viruses are much, much smaller, and they only exist when they're infecting another host. And in the same way you or I have flu, Clostridium difficile has viruses that will only infect it so what we've been doing is actually trying to find these viruses in the environment and then you see if they're effective to treat patients who had Clostridium difficile.
1: This is called phage therapy, isn't it? Because I think this is not a new idea because looking back in history, before we had good quality antibiotics, people were trying to do this for a whole host of infections, particularly in Russia, weren't they?
6: No, that's right. Right viruses that infect bacteria were first of all found nearly 100 years ago and in the 20s and 30s and 40s they were developed for many many different diseases and actually in places like Georgia they still use phages to treat many bacterial infections.
1: They don't pose any threat to the human that you give them to then?
6: No they're very very specific there's no way that they could infect a human cell they're very specific generally even to the bacterial group and their specificity might be really useful in something like Clostridium difficile because whereas an antibiotic will suppress clostridium it'll also kill many other species which you actually don't want that to happen whereas if you take a virus for clostridium difficile it would potentially only remove that infection and leave your other bacteria intact.
1: I suppose one other major bonus is that when the virus infects the C. diff bacterium it then makes hundreds if not thousands of new bacteriophages programmed to attack C. diff and it will keep going on amplifying the dose, if you like, until it runs out of C. diff to infect and then it will just go away.
6: Yes, well, certainly, unlike a conventional antibiotic, when a bacteria is infected by a virus, it will release perhaps 100 new viruses and they will then, as you say, sort of search through the rest of the infected area until they... um, run out of hosts to kill.
1: So have you got some bacteriophages that will attack C. diff in this way?
6: Yes, we have. After a fairly extensive searching (laughs) and a good team of PhD students and postdoc, we eventually um, have come up with a very good set of, well, promising set of viruses that uh, infect Clostridium difficile.
1: So how will you deploy them? What's the next step?
6: Well, at the moment, having got the viruses, we've shown that they work individually. So we're now spending about a year or so trying to design the optimal combination of viruses. Once we've done that, what we hope to be able to do is to then put them into a capsule, which would then be able to pass through the stomach. And then when it gets to the um, colon, the capsule would would dissolve and the viruses would be released in a targeted way.
1: What about the fact that You mentioned that these bacteriophages, these viruses, are extremely selective and specific for the bugs they will infect. What about the fact that there may be different strains of C. diff out there in different people? Will you end up with effectively lots of C. diff that is immune to your phages?
6: Well, what we're doing at the moment, and we're still in this work, I should emphasise, is still at quite a preliminary stage. We have the viruses and we're now testing um, which strains they infect. But what we intend to do is find the smallest number of viruses that infect the most number of strains that are circulating in patients. So at any one time, there are a subset of strains that are causing the most number of cases of disease. So what we'd hope to find is a little um, small set of viruses that can infect these strains. But one of the real attractions of phage therapy is that as new strains come into circulation, we'd be able to then just find other viruses that are then effective in these new strains. So you don't have to go right back to the drawing board. We just have to go back into our bank of viruses and find one that's effective on these strains.
1: Martha, we must leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us to tell us about this, and we wish you luck with the research. Thank you very much. Martha Clokey from the University of Leicester. Kat
2: and now on the subject of bugs I have just had my flu jab this week I feel a little bit grotty but there is flu news Uh, writing in the journal Nature scientists at the Whitehead Institute in the US have made a step forward in understanding why the flu virus is so deadly and they have actually done it in a very very clever way. Now when you're infected by the flu virus your immune system generates cells called B cells that produce antibodies, these are special proteins that recognise the virus and neutralise it. Now a subset of these B cells take up residence in the lungs, they're called memory B cells, and they help fight off the uh, the infection if you get reinfected into your lungs by uh, inhaling the virus. Now, these memory B cells are particularly good at recognising the virus and they spring into action. They make more antibodies at the first sign of infection. But the scientists have discovered that the flu virus can specifically infect and kill these cells in the lungs. And that actually makes it harder for them to fight off the infection and gives the flu another go
1: at infecting you. That's pretty nasty, isn't it? So the virus gets into you and it wipes out the very cells that are there to defend you in case it comes back again.
2: Exactly. Exactly. It's very cunning. Now, uh, to find out how this was working, they did it in a a very, very roundabout, but very clever way. Now, it's very, very difficult to purify these flu-infected B cells, so they had to take a bit of a roundabout technique, and they used cloning techniques. So they got some mice that had been infected with flu, and they looked for the B cells that had been specifically infected by flu. And then they took those B cells, took the DNA, the nucleus, out of those B cells, injected it into a mouse egg cell that had had its own DNA removed. And then they grew embryonic stem cells from that and then created what's called chimeric mice, transgenic mice. So that in the mice that they generated, all of their B cells could only recognise the flu. So you instead of trying to spot the cells in the mice, they just make a mouse where all the cells recognise flu. Very, very clever way of doing it. And when they studied how the virus infected these mice, they found that the virus infects the flu-specific memory B cells in their lungs and kills those cells. But in other parts of the body, like the lymph nodes, it doesn't destroy them. So it looks like the flu is specifically targeting and killing the cells that are deliberately there to try and protect us. Uh, from when we re-inhale the virus and it gives it another chance for the infection to take hold before the rest of the immune system kicks in.
1: And now that we know how it's doing this, do they speculate how we may be able to exploit this in order to make a flu therapy or to reduce the risk of someone catching flu again?
2: Well, they think it helps to explain why flu is so infectious and why it can kind of go round and round again. Uh, So it could help with the design of of vaccines or ways to treat it, Uh, maybe entirely new preventive approaches. But what's interesting as well is that this roundabout cloning technique could actually be used to study other kinds of viral infections too. So it's a really great technique for studying specifically how individual viruses infect and act on the body's immune system. So it's a, a really nice piece of work.
1: Thank you, Kat. Well, you might want to lay back and relax as I tell you about the final story this week which is actually all about the subject of sleep because despite decades of research we don't really understand what this process is that we spend maybe a third of your life doing and that's sleeping. Why do we need to go to sleep? Well, there's a paper in Science this week by Maken Nedegaard who's a researcher at the University of Rochester and she and her colleagues think that they've stumbled on one of the important processes that goes on when we go to sleep and that is that the brain uses this as an opportunity to flush out a whole load of rubbish and metabolic waste that accumulates during the day it's rather like sending the cleaners around the office at night to go and empty the waste paper bins what they did was to study mice they injected dyes into the cerebrospinal fluid which is the fluid that bathes the brain in these mice and they looked at how quickly it penetrated in around the cells in the brain and when the mice were awake the dye made it in amongst the cells, only really very slowly. But when the animals went to sleep, either naturally or when they were put to sleep with a small dose of an anaesthetic agent, the dye raced in amongst the brain cells and filled the brain up very very fast and they said well this looks like some mechanism when we go to sleep is opening up the spaces around the brain cells and encouraging cerebrospinal fluid to circulate so is it there to wash things out so then they started looking at the kinds of molecules that are really made by the active brain and need to be washed away including the chemical beta amyloid, which is a protein that can cause Alzheimer's disease. And by comparing, again, animals that were awake and animals that were asleep and taking samples of the fluid from around the brain cells, they found that this beta amyloid gets washed away twice as quickly when you go to sleep compared with when you are awake. And they think that the signal in the brain that triggers this opening up is down to the nerve transmitter chemical noradrenaline because they did some experiments showing that various drugs including drugs that simulate the effects of noradrenaline would trigger this effect to happen and noradrenaline is used to trigger wakefulness or sleepiness in the brain and so it sort of fits together and so they suggest that this is as they put it in their words, the restorative function of sleep could be due to the switching of the brain into a functional state that facilitates the clearance of degradation products of neural activity that accumulate during wakefulness or to put another way the brain having a damn good clear out when we go to sleep
2: thanks chris and i'm sure that you won't send any of us to sleep by listening to the podcast Um, as always you can find out more information including references for all the papers that we've talked about on our website that's thenakedscientist.com slash
1: news let's move on to our main topic this week which is that earlier this year the uk's chief medical officer dame sally davies described antibiotic resistant bacteria as a ticking time bomb which could make routine operations deadly in just 20 years over the next half an hour we're going to be meeting a host of scientists who are working to fight infections and halt the spread of antibiotic resistant bacteria
2: To find out just how big an issue we're facing, we're joined in the studio by consultant microbiologist Dr Nick Brown, who's in charge of infection control at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge and is consultant medical microbiologist for Public Health England. Hi Nick. Hi there. Thanks for coming on the show. Now, uh, let's set the scene a bit. Uh, How big a threat to us are drug-resistant bacteria?
7: Well, of course, antibiotic resistance is an entirely natural phenomenon and something that uh, we could consider to be entirely predictable because bacteria have been around for tens of thousands of years. And most of the antibiotics that we have today are products that were developed from naturally occurring substances in the environment. So bacteria have developed ways of, of overcoming their activity. But if an organism is able to become resistant to an antibiotic, then it won't respond to treatment with that agent. And therefore, the outcome from infections is more severe. People might not be able to go home from hospital, for example, they might stay in hospital longer, the results of the treatment might not be as effective. And some things that we might consider to be common as part of everyday modern healthcare, for example, a total hip replacement, or cancer treatments, for example, might become impossible if we have no antibiotics to treat the infections that might complicate them.
2: Now, is this a particularly recent problem or has it been going on for some time?
7: Antibiotic resistance was described very, very soon after the first antibiotics were developed. But in fact, it's been, or certainly bacteria have the ability to become resistant for for far longer than that. So there have been studies in Canada in permafrost, for example, and studies on soil that was taken from around the roots of plants that were harvested in the 17th century that showed that the bacteria in these samples had genes that had potential to confer resistant antibiotics that are used today. So certainly the organisms have the ability to develop resistance very quickly.
2: And can you paint me a bit of a picture of the actual the scale of the problem?
7: Well, it's very difficult to give just a single absolute number, of course, because the problem varies from one organism to another and from one place to another, not only in the community and in the hospital, but also from one country to another. But if we take some specific examples for common infections that cause, for example, cystitis or urinary tract infection, now there are organisms that are resistant to all of the usual oral antibiotics that GPs in this country have available to them, and people are having to be admitted to hospital to have intravenous treatment. In other parts of the world common infections such as pneumonia or other chest infections can't be treated with a penicillin group of antibiotics because the most common organism that causes this infection, streptococcus pneumoniae, is becoming resistant. So it varies from one place to another, one organism to another. But what is common, I think, across the whole patch is the resistance is becoming more common And not only that, of course, the the other big issue is that we don't have any new antibiotics that are coming along to take the place of the ones that are becoming less effective.
2: Because we'll be covering uh, later on in the show about some of the new approaches that people are taking. But I just wanted to explore uh, maybe why we're seeing such a problem now, because you hear in the papers that it's because doctors have been giving out antibiotics like sweeties. How much of a problem is overuse of antibiotics led to this resistance challenge that we have now?
7: I think that is certainly an issue. If we think of the main strategies that we have for controlling resistance, then clearly making the use of antibiotics more appropriate is one key area to, if you like, protect what we've got. But overuse of antibiotics is something that occurs very widely. And perhaps also, in some respects, more more important is the, the variation in antibiotic use, for example, between one GP practice and another, and between one country and another. And that's not easily explainable.
2: So is this uh, the kind of approach that we need to take across borders? Because I guess people travel so much that we're just spreading infections all around
7: the world. Absolutely. This is key. And in some areas of the world, the problem is being taken much more seriously than in others. And that is is one of the key issues that organisations such as the WHO are taking very seriously at the moment.
2: And if we don't take it seriously, if we don't properly get a lid on bacterial resistance, what are some of the costs that we could face? I mean, you talked about making surgery very difficult, but in terms of the financial costs and the human costs...
7: Absolutely, in both. And we forget, I think, how much we've become to rely on antibiotics in all aspects of of healthcare. So not only the traditional infections, if you like, the chest infections, the skin infections, uh, urine infections, but uh, the treatment of cancers um, where survival has improved dramatically, but the aggressive chemotherapy that we now give people makes them much more vulnerable to infection. Bone marrow transplantation, um, organ transplantation, liver, kidney, heart, lung transplants, for example, would not be possible if you didn't have any antibiotics to treat the infections that occur after them.
2: And we're going to talk more about designing specific strategies, but broadly, what would you like to see happen very, very quickly to help get on top of this problem?
7: Well in the introduction we've already discussed the uh the chief medical officer's um uh, annual report and in that To summarise, the two key areas of activity really, the first to protect what we've got, um, to, to make better use of antibiotics, to prevent the emergence of new resistance and to prevent the resistance that is already occurring spreading more widely. And then the second area is to try and regenerate the pipeline for drug discovery of new antibiotics. Because although there was, a, if you like, a sort of golden era of antibiotic development until about 1968 um, when 15 classes of antibiotic were discovered and developed. Since then, there have only been five classes of antibiotic discovered and, and in fact, you could argue that that some of those were
1: actually just modifications of the ones that had been there before.
2: Thanks very much. That's Nick Brown from Addenbrookes Hospital.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arnie. So we've heard how dangerous bacterial infections can be, but how do they actually spread from one person to the next? Last Monday, a meeting was convened at the Department of Health in London, which brought together scientists from both Britain and America to discuss how we can use new technologies that can rapidly read the DNA sequences of bacteria to study the way individual bugs move about and how they affect our health. And they can then tell us how we can minimise the risk them becoming resistant to antibiotics. Jack Gilbert from Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago was at that meeting.
3: You're shedding about 15 million bacterial cells into the immediate environment around you every minute. Those 15 million cells comprise mostly of bacteria associated with skin, but they also come from your nose and your mouth and interestingly even uh, from your uh, gastrointestinal system via your trousers and onto the seats you're sitting on. So you leave a signature wherever you go and those bacteria land on the surface. Most of them die, but some of them proliferate and they insist, like go dormant or they proliferate, then they can be transmitted from you to another person.
1: Which means if we were in a hospital and another person comes into that part of the hospital where someone with a certain type of bacteria has been, there is therefore the prospect for them to pick up those
3: bugs. Precisely, and we believe this is the main element of transmission. There's a hypothesis which stipulates that it's really just people touching each other. So when you go and shake hands or you hug or a doctor comes and talks to you and pats you on the shoulder, that's where that transmission comes from. There's an element which believes it's just in the air, i.e. the bacteria living on little bioaerosols, these little particles in the air, and you inhale them and that's where you get the infection from. And there's groups that believe that the bacteria live on surfaces and you go along and touch that surface after someone else has touched it and you're going to catch that bacterium. But there are literally tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of bacterial species living alongside the bad ones that make you sick. And we don't understand what role they play in promoting or suppressing the transmission of those pathogens.
1: So there are good guys, there are bad guys. The good guys might stop you catching the bad guys. They may also do other things to your body to keep you healthy. What don't we know fundamentally and how can we find out the answers to those questions?
3: Only in the last, say, 10 years have we had technology which enables us to rapidly and adequately describe these environments and these communities. So we're just touching the surface. In the human body, there are 100 billion bacterial cells. And we have spent the last five years cataloguing those extensively, but without much Benefits, You know, we're still literally making a catalogue, a shopping list of the bacteria that live within us and what they do. We are finding extraordinary things. They influence our behaviour. They influence our mood. They can determine whether you are depressed or anxious. They also influence our disease state, i.e. if you have a healthy bacterial community in your intestine, in your mouth, then that can prevent you from getting a pathogenic infection. They act to increase or decrease your metabolic clock inside your body. So jet lag we could potentially cure by putting the right types of bacteria back inside your gut. How can we use this understanding
1: to make sure we either don't get antimicrobial resistance or to mitigate what we already have got?
3: That's a very complicated question, and that's exactly what we're here today to try and uncover. How do we design the best experiments possible so we can determine exactly why certain bacterial communities may affect that process? One of the fundamental problems that we have is that we don't understand which bacteria are out there and how they interact together. So by defining those links, saying how bacteria talk to each other daily... Finding out how they communicate and how they respond to that communication could change the way we think about disease infection, and especially antimicrobial resistance, because it's when those bacteria talk to each other that they transmit that resistance between each other. So we need to understand that fundamentally. We believe that the hospital environment may be, or stress may, Maybe a reservoir of antimicrobial resistance. So, how can we answer those sorts of questions? What are
1: we armed with in terms of the tools to do this research now that we didn't have in the last
3: 10 years? We've fundamentally increased our ability to sequence the genomes of these organisms, much the same as the Human Genome Project. We can sequence a bacterial genome for a couple of hundred, three hundred dollars now. And that data stream is helping us to ask where before we would have analysed. 20 or 30 patients, now we can analyse 20 or 30,000 patients and that ability changes our capacity to do statistical analysis and as any scientist will tell you if the statistics don't hold up it's not true, so we, we need that power, we need that number of observations to really get at the statistical integrity.
1: So you can use DNA technology to probe what are these bacteria, which I presume is going to be good news because not all bacteria grow, where previously we tried
3: to grow things in dishes. We would
1: have missed some, so that
3: may be a factor too. So this is exactly the idea that some organisms grow really well in the lab, and that's what we've been looking at. But there are uh, circumstantial evidence which suggests that a lot of the diseases we encounter, we don't know what bacteria or what virus causes that disease. So these kinds of analysis that look at the bacteria in situ with sequencing technologies, and we can identify bacteria which always present when that person has that illness or always present when multiple people have that illness helps us to identify new diseases can it also help us to identify who may be at risk of a disease the concept of this is that the bacterial community in your body undergo what we would call dysbiosis they're no longer in symbiotic union with us when that symbiotic relationship breaks down we are open to all kinds of mischief Different pathogens can infect us. Our metabolic states in our guts can change. Our liver condition can change. And that has serious implications for our health and well-being in a hospital.
1: Jack Gilbert from Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago. And thank you also to the Foreign Office's Jack Westwood. He's based at the Science and Innovation Network in Chicago. And he invited us to that meeting. Kat.
2: So, fast-reading DNA techniques, like those we've just heard about, can help us to understand what bacteria are involved in an infection. But how can this actually help us treat them, particularly if there's antibiotic resistance and it becomes more widespread? To find out, we're joined by John Wayne, who is Professor of Microbiology at the University of East Anglia. Hi, John. Hi, Now, let's start off uh, by talking about how are bacterial infections currently identified and how long does that take?
4: So the identification currently is through culture at the microbiology lab. So you actually have to grow them. Some people call it chemical gardening, but it's a matter of days before we can actually get a result. What that means is that when you go to the GP, the GP is giving you antibiotics on clinical grounds. So... They take a look at you, decide if you've got an infection or not and then the decision to actually give antibiotics is taken and then the samples are taken and the diagnostic results come back.
2: It's a bit of a a shooting in the dark approach and if you get the wrong one to start with it could be really serious.
4: That's why this idea of broad-spectrum antibiotics tends to be quite popular. So obviously if you're, as you've put it, shooting in the dark, then you want something very broad so that you make sure that you kill what it is that you are actually shooting at.
2: So how are we using new genetic techniques to actually try and get down to a, a precision rifle at these bugs?
4: Okay, so obviously there are problems with using broad spectrum. The problem of collateral damage, as we heard with Clostridium difficile, if you interfere with the gut flora, you're likely to get overgrowth of a pathogen. So this specific idea is that we just get the pathogen and we don't hit the normal flora. So there are two ways that we can overcome that. The first is with good diagnostics and that's where these new technologies and sequencing can really help. So we've heard about being able to recognise the microbiome. You can also recognise the pathogens that are causing infection if you take the right samples and if you can get that sequencing out quickly enough then you can get real-time evidence in so that you can actually use targeted antibiotics.
2: And how quickly are we talking about and how quickly could we do that nowadays and how quickly do you think it will become possible in the future?
4: The quickest we can do it at the moment is we can do two large-scale sequencing runs a day. 24 to 48 hours realistically is the quickest you can do it at the moment but that's on a large machine which is laboratory based there are new technologies coming out which look like sort of usb sticks that you put into a computer and those will i believe in the not too distant future be giving us results much more quickly
2: so that's something that's really positive. But then what can we do with this information that can actually make treatment more effective and particularly overcome this problem of resistance?
4: So the other problem to using targeted antibiotics is developing targeted antibiotics. So there are lots of chemicals out there, lots of small molecules, lots of compounds that hit bacteria. So we we know we can kill these bacteria, but the problem is taking those hits to what the chemists call lead optimization so choosing which of those chemical compounds to actually take forward and using high throughput sequencing technologies we can now x-ray a bacteria we can look right inside that bacterium and actually work out exactly what these small molecules are doing that allows the chemists to optimize them more effectively so that we can choose which ones to put into lead up
2: i guess it's a lot similar way to the kind of targeted therapies in cancer that we're seeing nowadays isn't it
4: Yes, it is very much so. It also obviously has um, similarities with what we're hearing about with the bacteriophage therapies.
2: So thanks very much. Uh, That's John Wayne from the University of East Anglia.
4: So maybe as John says, we need to develop
1: new antibiotics which can tackle just specific bacteria and this will help us to minimise disease rates. But how are these new drugs developed? One Cambridge based company called Discover are looking for brand new antibiotics that will hopefully not have the resistance problems which current antibiotics suffer from. David Williams, the CEO of Discover, took Ginny Smith to their lab to see how they go about finding potential new drugs.
8: So you're looking for a compound that might work as a drug to kill bacteria. Where do you even start? There must be so many compounds out there.
9: There's about 10 million compounds you can acquire. So what we do is we look at those computationally to look for chemical qualities that we think will allow them to penetrate a bacterial cell, and we screen them against different bacteria that are pathogens in our hospitals today.
8: And can you show me how you do that screening? Yeah, sure.
9: We have here a microtiter plate, and this is essentially loads of test tubes joined together. And we put our compounds, our chemicals, in each of these individual test tubes, and we put bacteria on top of them and we grow them over time and the bacteria that aren't affected by the compound grow and, and become cloudy in solution and the ones that are prevented from growing there's a clear solution
8: how many wells are there in each of those
9: in each plate there's a uh, 386 wells
8: wow so you can look at 386 different possible drugs at the same time
9: that's correct yes absolutely yes
8: And then can you show me the computer system that actually tells you which ones have worked? Yep,
9: I can take you over there now.
8: Okay, so it's a big grey cupboard basically.
9: We have a a reader inside here, a plate reader which will scan through 50 plates at once.
8: And then there's a computer next to it and it's got lots of little circles on it and they're all different colours. What does that mean?
9: Yeah, each of the coloured spots represents uh, an individual well in the plate.
8: Okay, so there's a load of blue spots down one side. what do they mean?
9: Well that's where we don't have any bacteria in the well at all so they just have the growth medium in them so the blue means there's been no bacterial growth so no cloudiness of the solution.
8: So what you're looking for is one of the other spots that has bacteria in it but has a different medium to be blue as well because that would mean the bacteria hadn't grown?
9: That's correct and at the moment they're green in colour which means there's a, a lot of growth
8: So none of these would be possible candidates for a drug?
9: This particular plate, no, not at the moment. This is um, a bacteria called Pseudomonas. This particular bacteria is a really difficult pathogen to treat. It causes um, various blood infections and uh, respiratory infections.
8: Okay, so although there aren't any here that might be candidates, you do often get them coming up. How do you figure out if this is going to be a really effective antibacterial treatment or if it's just going to work only in some circumstances and not for very long?
9: Well, we've got a very neat technology that we've developed. We've had to take some of these pathogens that are problems and engineer them. And we've engineered them in such a way that we can use them as mini computers to tell us what's happening to a compound when they're treated with it. A bacteria has a piece of DNA, it's chromosome, which is eight million base pairs long. We put individual tags in different bacteria at every position in that genome. And those tags are pieces of DNA that can disrupt genes or activate genes in the position that the tag's been placed. And we incubate all of those bacteria with our compounds and without our compound. After we've grown those bacteria, we sequence the bacteria that's gone into the experiment and the bacteria that's come out of the experiment. And it's the difference between the mutants that we see that gives us the information on what the compound's doing. So it can tell us exactly what component inside the cell the compound is binding to and affecting. And it can tell us what all the potential resistance mechanisms could be for that compound. And that's really important because we don't want to develop new antibiotics that are going to develop resistance quickly in the clinic. We want to be working on compounds that can last a long time once they're on the market and in patients.
8: So you're essentially trying to speed up what would happen in nature once people started being treated with this new compound because bacteria are very fast at evolving and can develop resistance quite quickly. So is that what your technique's doing, sort of trying to speed that up and see what would happen in real life?
9: Yes, absolutely right. We can do what nature does in 10 years in a week.
8: Brilliant. So then you can pick out the ones that it's hardest for the bacteria to evolve resistance towards and focus on those for the future.
9: That's exactly what we do. And and all of our compounds that we're working on for new drugs have those qualities inbuilt.
8: You were talking about 8 million base pairs, 8 million different types of bacteria, and then you're sequencing the genome for each of those. That must be huge amounts of data. Does this not take days and days to do and to process?
9: Three or four years ago, it was impossible to do this. It's really the rapid advances in um, next-generation sequencing technology that have enabled us to be able to do this. And this particular instrument can give us sequence information back from um, 200 million different sequencing reactions in just a few hours. The information that we generate is huge. I mean, we generate in a week more information than has been generated in the whole London Stock Exchange in its history.
8: Wow. Have any of your drugs reached clinical trials yet?
9: No, we're a relatively new company. We've only been in the laboratories for just under two years. For us to pursue any of our drugs to the clinic is going to be a minimum time of three years.
2: Thanks to David Williams from Discover.
1: We've been talking uh, this week about how we can halt the tide of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. One company called Blueberry Therapeutics has worked out a way to give a new lease of life to old drugs by resensitizing bugs to the antibiotics that we already do have. Blueberry's co-founder, who is also a former surgeon, Mike Davis, is with us. Hello, Mike. Hi there. Hi, Chris. So you've decided to swap your scalpel for a sort of molecular scalpel in this instance. (laughs)
10: Indeed, yes. Well, we're blueberry therapeutics, and what we're doing is to basically inhibit the resistance of resistant bacteria. So we effectively make them sensitive to current antibiotics, the ones that they have become resistance to. We do that by a very clever technique using a nanoparticle delivery. We have a nanopolymer that basically wraps itself around certain things, certain drugs, certain proteins and things, and delivers them into the bacterial cells. So we have developed what are called aptamers, and in specifically this area, something called an aphemer, which is really a, a tiny, tiny little antibody, really incredibly small related to an antibody, and these are... Taken up by the nanopolymer into a, what's called a nanoparticle, and effectively delivered into the bacterial cell, and we're targeting the way that those bacteria actually inhibit antibiotics. There are over 200 ways that bacteria inhibit antibiotics and stop them from working. We're literally switching those off. So what happens evidence.
1: then if, um, if the bacteria mutate? Uh, because one of the things that bacteria do is they change all the time. So why can't they just change to get around what you're throwing at them?
10: Well, I mean, that's a very good question. And of course, we will have to look for that as we develop these, these compounds. But first of all, they haven't done that before because there haven't been these ways of blocking really effectively the resistance mechanisms. And we can probably keep pace with that because we have these small proteins that we call aphemers and they are literally a small number of amino acids, the things that build up proteins long. And they're built like a tiny antibody, as I say. So they've got two arms that we can change by one amino acid and it will literally change how it binds. Now, with that process, the thought is, and it's a big picture for the future, but the thought is, as a bacterium or bacteria change and become resistant, perhaps, to one of our alphemers, we can rapidly change it so we develop a new way of blocking the new resistance.
1: So if you're putting in something that is a protein, though which is what your treatment is, is there not a danger that a person's immune system will react to that and then you'll get an immune response? You'll make your own antibodies to your drug?
10: Well, that's again a very, very good question and something that we would carefully look for in the development. Although we will start off by the topical delivery of these aptimus. So we'll start off in MRSA infected wounds such as venous leg ulcers and diabetic foot ulcers and The aphemas that we give are targeted directly at the bacteria. We doubt if we will see an immune response. We will have to look for that, and it's a very important part of the drug development.
1: Mike, we must leave it there, but thank you very much. Mike Davis, here's from Blueberry Therapeutics.
2: And now we've just got time for Hannah Critchlow to answer our question of the week.
4: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega. This
11: week, we sniff out the answer to a question that Andrew wrote in with. Can dogs catch and transmit human viruses? Could you pass the flu onto your pooch? Could your dog then sneeze over your great-aunt Mildred? Veterinary surgeon Sarah Caddy from Cambridge University...
12: People often wonder if they can catch viruses from their dogs. But not many people stop to think about the alternative scenario. Can they infect their dogs if they have a virus? Despite the fact that humans and dogs live so closely together, there are actually very few proven reverse zoonotic infections. This is mainly because the vast majority of human viruses are species-specific. That is, they only affect one species. For a virus to replicate, it must bind to a specific receptor on a cell surface and then enter that cell to hijack the host cell replication machinery. Many human cell surface receptors are not found on dog cells, hence human viruses cannot enter the dog cells and cause infection. Good news for the pooch
11: protected from the majority of human viruses then. But hang on, I'm sure I've heard reports of dogs catching human flu.
12: The most common reverse nautic virus in dogs is influenza. A handful of dogs have been reported to have severe flu-like symptoms after infection. But in most dogs, infection with the human flu virus is only very mild or subclinical, so no signs of disease develop.
11: And once infected, can dogs pass the human flu between other members of the canine world? Or can they even infect your great-uncle Albert?
12: Dog-to-dog transmission of influenza is possible in experimental conditions, but rare. And as yet, transmission from dog back to human has not been reported. Overall, the risk of transmitting a virus infection to your dog is very low. But do see a vet if your dog starts showing similar symptoms to you.
11: Thanks, Sarah Caddy, for the answer and Andrew for the question. Trumping along, we make a movement. Elena wrote in with this.
8: I'm currently trying to understand how food and I interact the most recent experience was baking fried mints in the oven. I love cottage pie and was on a no-fat diet. So the onion and mints were fried without oil or any lubricant, with tomato and tomato puree, mixed herbs, cumin and turmeric. It was then baked for about 20 minutes. Quite a reasonable dish on a diet. But I also decided to try cooking it again, this time just fried for about 15 to 20 minutes. The fried mince was fine when I ate it, but the fried then-baked mints, there was smelly air to follow. So my question is, is there something in the ingredients or cooking technique that would cause my extra flatulence?
11: So what's causing Elena's farts?
2: <laughs> Any help with that farty one? Thanks to Hannah Critchlow for this week's question of the week.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us, chris at scientists.com is the email address. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scientists. And that is indeed it for this week. I will leave you with the answer to the teaser. We asked you the cryptic clue, a fishwoman with food poisoning, who is she? Well, the woman's called Ella, the fish were salmon. It is, of course, Salmon Ella. Thank you to our guests, Martha Clokey, Nick Brown, Jack Gilbert, John Wayne, David Williams and Michael Davies. Thank you also to the wonderful Kat Arney for joining us. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next time, extreme geology. The world of massive earthquakes, explosive volcanoes and huge tsunamis. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.